This is Coda Radio, episode 362, for June 17th, 2019. Dakota Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show that takes a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. My name is Wes, and on the other line, well, it's that fighting Floridian, Mr. Michael Dominic. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you, Wes. And I think we have a an often lover with us this week. Oh, yes. Rejoining us once again in corner number three. Mr. Chris Fisher. Guys? Oh. Oh, yeah. It's Coda Radio time, isn't it? Oh, it is. We're live. I mean, I was just in here doing work. I don't know what you guys are doing here. You got roped in, <laughs> tied you up to the chair, put a <laughs> microphone in your face, and now you're with us. Oh, man. I actually am really glad to be here because there's two topics, at least today, that I have many things to say on. But I feel like I've, I've joined a new cult. I'm part of a, a, a cult member now, and uh, I can't wait to tell you guys about it. Life-changing stuff. You've been you've been raving on it behind the scenes, but you haven't been willing to give us any more details than that. Save it for the show. You, you know say. how I do. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty smart. I, I'm thinking it's HomePods five and six, but that's just my guess. <laughs> I can never get away from it. <laughs> it's a whole HomePod powered home theater system. You know, this HomePod thing is really taking a life of its own because I kid you not, my wife told me yesterday. She said, "Darling, when you die, I'll bury you with one of the HomePods." <laughs> HomePod and Levi, Levi, right? That's what you need. <laughs> you know, Chris, I did join the HomePod club. Yeah. Yeah. How, okay. Now, be honest with me. Do you like it? I liked it for the one day I had it, and then my wife heard it and commandeered it. Oh, oh yeah, that yeah. good, huh? Yeah, no, they're good. They're good. They're good. Yeah, they're good. So I have ordered a second HomePod. Honestly, if uh, if Apple would put like Bluetooth in that thing or an aux in, I would I would graduate this from like a joke meme thing to like an actual serious recommendation. Yeah, for me, it's another product of theirs that I admire from afar. I've heard them; they do sound great. I I would probably buy one, but it's useless to me. The reason why I got it ultimately is I was I took a bet that Apple was going to do more with this thing as time went on. Like, why would they put like an A8 processor in a speaker? unless they had some serious intentions. And now you see with some of the updates that are coming to HomeKit cameras, the HomePods will now be doing on-network analysis of the images. Really? Just saying. HomePod gets more useful. Just saying. Apple no, is particularly good that. at that, though, right? I mean, they sort of longer-term enablement of features. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of yeah, feel like maybe if they were going to launch it today, though, they'd probably put a screen on there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's sort of the trend. Sort of the trend of things. But I missed you guys, so it's nice to be back. Yeah. It's been a while since we've all been together. It's it's lovely to all be here today. Reunited. I see you've brought a little a little toy to the studio. You want to talk about it? Yeah, I'm really? I'm kind of curious. Well, God, so close to the HomePods, it makes me this really makes me look bad. <laughs> um, so uh, I have a I have an iPad. I think the audience knows that, and I think it's actually a pretty great work machine. I have ISH on there. I have WireGuard for my VPN. Um, and, uh, I had, there is a really great terminal application, um, that I think it's called Tremulous. I can't remember the name. Tremulous. Uh, yeah, I, I just have it on my home screen here. And this makes like SSHing into multiple boxes, just totally easy. And then, um, 
when I found out that I could also uh, add like GitHub as just regular like files, you know, like you go in the files app and I can get access to GitHub repos. It's like, okay, this is actually starting to become a serious little work appliance for me. And I just happen to like the email and calendaring mm. on iPad better than, I, just work? better than they do on Linux. I just don't. I don't like going into the web page, and I don't like Thunderbird very much, and I don't like Evolution very much, and I don't like Kmail very much. Right. I don't even consider using it. I just always use the web client. Mm-hmm. And you're right. It's not It's, not, it's, not, it's not native. No, and a lot of times I want to do extra things. Like I want to take a, an invoice, and I want to export it out to a PDF for expenses, for expense tracking and whatnot. Yeah, There's a lot of easy workflows on iOS to do that. So I added the bridge keyboard to the iPad, which you may have heard of before. It, they make keyboards for lots of devices now. And it's a Bluetooth metal keyboard. The whole thing is a giant battery that charges over USB-C. So you can you can actually charge up the iPad a couple of times off your keyboard, which is pretty great. It's a backlit, full QWERTY keyboard that has better key travel and is more comfortable to type on than the MacBook Pro keyboard, which I, I grant you is not a high benchmark. Um, so I'm not, I'm not saying it's the best keyboard ever. It's not ThinkPad quality, but it's definitely beyond MacBook quality. But what, what is really great about it, and I, I encourage you to go look it up, it's the Bridge keyboard. Um, it makes the iPad like a full laptop. The screen has, uh, has an arm that you can, you can tilt at any angle you like. It uh, is nice and metal, so it feels all really sturdy. It feels the fit like and one finish, piece. it looks like Apple could have made it, really. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Take a look at it. Um, if, you, if you've been thinking about just getting a little work appliance that is foolproof, like sometimes my displays are screwed up on my workstation oh, or no. sometimes Comcast goes down, the iPad is kind of like my anxiety pill for that. Like I know that the iPad, I can open up this screen. It's always going to turn on. It's got an AT&T card in there, so it's always going to connect to the internet, even when Comcast goes down. I wonder, so, is this part of the advantage of it? I mean, it's getting more and more general purpose, right? But it was kind of started as a different type of computing, doing things differently with more limitations, but simplified. So yeah. it is tempting, right? You've got these Linux machines, and either they're kind of futsy to use or they're a machine you're using for sort of playing and testing. And you don't, not only can't you do that on the iPad, but you don't, you're not really drawn to. So you've, you've left it alone as an isolated device just for certain workflows. Exactly. And uh, kind of going back to something we've talked about a lot on the show is it's really hard to get the perfect workstation. You've got to make a compromise somewhere. And this is sort of like an escape hatch for some of those compromises. But additionally, like we were talking about with the HomePod, you kind of can plan on Apple making this a lot better over time. So it starts the iPad Pro, this 11-inch when they first shipped it. The uh, reviews came out. The number one knock is no file storage access. You know, you can't hook up yeah. storage devices. Well, now in iOS 13, as we all know now, they're not only adding fantastic file external support, but they're adding local storage support. They're adding SMB support. But also, additionally, they're making Safari a full desktop browser, which essentially now makes this, to me, just for my use, just as good as a Chromebook. And when this iPad Pro 11 was announced, it was at the same time the new Pixel was announced Mm, that is a Chrome OS, really nice machine that I really considered because Linux Academy is all in on the Google app side. And it, you know, that's where we we live. So I thought, well, maybe I should get a Google device. I, I bet that that wouldn't be that polished and that this would be limited, the iPad would be limited, but in a year or so, they would add more to it. And that's exactly what's happened. There is something to the approach, and I think we could all internalize this a little bit, of just solving the, the problems you can at the time, but the slow and steady pace of improvement, instead of just trying to launch everything at once. What feels like with the iPad and the HomePod is the stuff they're rolling out now, they already had on the roadmap a year ago. But they just they they kept it in house an extra year to let it bake an extra year before they ship it. Right, they're not they're not always playing the first to market sort of thing. They they have enough of their own space to play in that they can afford to get it right. And I think 
I think this might be why I'm starting to... There's certain things I just really like about Fedora, and I think it's some of that same... There's certain groundwork they lay down that I follow for a while, and then it lands in each release. Like, uh, I just started playing around with Pipewire. Ooh. You know, and I've been watching that land now mm-hmm. for a while, and it's been a slow, gradual build. Uh, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting way to uh, build a product, and there's just lots of different approaches. And I think this, that's the kind of approach that works well for me, a continuous, slow, gradual improvement. I'm wondering how that compares to some of the drama we saw over uh, the approach to features in uh, the GNOME desktop. Because some of the iPad development reminds me, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit slower, and you know, there's there's plenty of drama around removing features or changing the look and feel of things. But it, it seems like the underlying philosophy was was kind of similar, right? Get a few things right, mm-hmm. minimize stuff, focus there, and eventually, as we've seen, some of the features we lost, they've come back in yeah. different or more refined ways. I, I kind of clearly do remember, like around GNOME three twelve or something, like things really took a turn and it just became a real steady. Then same with Plasma. It's one of the things I think why Plasma is so great right now. Certain product life cycles. It's pretty nice. So I noticed you guys have been doing this challenge thing. This is, how come we never thought of this, Mike? This sounds kind of fun. Just a lot of work, though. Who has time for challenges? (laughs) I know. It's a lot of work, and Wes does not make it easy. (laughs) No. Well, I mean, you said you wanted a challenge. You know what? I I liked it. I got to say, this last one, you you, you really got me. Um, So Reason ML. Much like Lawrence of Arabia, I went to OCaml. Now, I have never done anything in the OCaml world. If you don't know what I'm talking about when I say OCaml, it's because you are under the age of 50. <laughs> yeah, can you maybe, um, for the viewers not familiar with this obscure ML variant, uh, maybe obscure is too strong a word in that I you know, told you to use it, but can you break it down a little bit? What's, what's the deal with OCaml and how does reason fit? Yeah, so OCaml is like a... It is a language itself, but also like a language that other languages interop with and work with. It's like a whole world that is deeply mature and deeply complicated. Reason ML, or I often see it written as Reason, so I'm not sure. It looks like the official name is Reason ML, but they call it Reason in some of their docs. Is basically a, I'm going to say like dialect almost, um, of OCaml that can compile to JavaScript. Because when we need to compile, there's only one thing we're compiling to. That's right. It's got to be JavaScript. And they have an entire, which, which I love, by the way, an entire page that says what and why as the heading for the page. So I ended up having to actually read up on OCaml to understand what was going on here, right? Basically, Reason is a... JavaScript interoperable language. And it can also compile to native code, like a more traditional OCaml type application. Um, it is considered a systems language, much like, let's say, a Rust, for instance, as opposed to an application development language like a, you know, a la, I don't know, C Sharp, Objective C, Java, most of the more common things. But holy crap, is it fast! Um, now there's kind of two variants I found, Wes, and you can correct me where I'm wrong. There's the native where you're like literally writing native code that compiles that just runs super fast. But then there's also this JavaScript interoperability using a, it gets better, intermediary layer called buck, uh, buckle script. <laughs> of course. Yeah, isn't that a fun name? So many, so many things here. Um, you install Reason via NPM. Of course. <laughs> Which, I mean, that does kind of fit, though, right? I mean, that's how you install TypeScript, for instance. 
Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I found the install weirdly challenging. I ended up having to go into the Reason Discord and ask for help because I just couldn't get it to work. How, how responsive were they when you went into the community? Uh, they were very happy that people were using it. Oh, good. Um, but it's not a, I, I don't mean to say it's like a super small community at all. Actually, Reason is developed by the people who developed React. In other words, Facebook, right? And, oh, that is another flavor of Reason. React and React Native. So, it's high level here. We have Reason running natively, just like OCaml. We have Reason using um, uh, BuckleScript, uh, running just as like a JavaScript replacement, right? Or indeed, just straight interop with JavaScript. We have Reason with React and Reason with React Native. It is actually a pretty cool, deeply complicated language. So, like, just getting set up, I found hard, but that might just be me. Rocks, like, the type system, right? So, th they give you what they feel are, like, their five top things. Um, rock solid type system. Yeah, so Reason doesn't want you to screw up, basically. Much like a Rust. So, I found a very helpful comparison to Rust in general. Basically, it's not going to make it easier for you to do stupid things. Um, for instance, there's no such thing as null. Right. Anywhere you would think to use a null, you're going to be using, there's an optional type in Reason. Now, you can put optionals everywhere and not write super tight code. But from what I was looking at, reading all the samples and kind of playing with it on my own, you, you, it's not like Swift where everything is going to be optional, right? It's not, you know, Swift, you, you're, you're slinging question marks all over the place. <laughs> right. In, in Reason, it's more like if you need to, you can. They, say it's simple i don't agree but that's fine really so what 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 don't you find simple about it i found the setup actually weirdly hard um it was it almost felt like there was a different setup process particularly for the native stuff right the the easiest setup was actually the reason react mm, interesting because there's a super yeah there's a super helpful quick start that basically it's just like gives you a template um but once i got it running i mean wow it's it's fast. Yeah? Yeah. I So the tooling is another thing I found interesting because NPM for native development is weird to me, mm. but I think that's the direction we're just going in. Right. And then there's the other, you have the other camp where not having it on NPM is a big, you know, a big downer for them and they don't want to, it's like, oh, I have to install a separate build tool chain oh, and sure. stuff. Yeah, sure, sure. But you're right. Like either you hate NPM or love NPM. Either way, it's, yeah. it's kind of a pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it really was interesting. I mean, there are a few concepts that I pointed out in the doc. I am not going to go line by line through this. But in particular, I found the variant, um, basically it's a data structure and reason, to be actually pretty cool. Yeah, I love their introduction. Behold, the crown jewel of reason data structures. Most data structures in most languages are about this and that, right? Like an object with a couple fields. A variant allows us to express this or that. Yeah, and then there's a, you can do like fancy stuff with default cases. Um, and the syntax is just super tight. Like I could see if you were really worried about performance or wanted really hardcore safe functional, um, I guess a hardcore safe functional replacement for your JavaScript, this would make a lot of sense. Like there's actually, I put in the show notes, again, I'm not going to go too deep into it, uh, but Ken Wheeler uh, did a, a pretty good talk in 2018 where he's basically in pretty uh, blunt terms recommending reason as you know if you're writing large 
um, node or NPM-based JavaScript code bases, consider using Reason for all the safety you basically get for free. It, it's a very similar argument to, I think, that Rust developers make, right? Like, yes, you have to follow these rules, and maybe every once in a while it's frustrating, but there's just like a whole category of error that you cannot actually commit. Right. And I mean, it might, might be a, a big helper too if you are you have a large team working on the same application from coming from different backgrounds and perspectives, or you're you know coming back a year later to do, do an update on a project you may have worked with a client on and sort of forgot everything that was there. Well, you've got these, these <laughs> nice types laid out for you. It's true. It's got built-in pattern matching, all the, all the standards you've come to find in you know, functional ML-style languages these days. I'm curious, Mike, um, the comparison to F-sharp, because F-sharp also has a lot of these goodies, you know, inspired by some of the same predecessors. And it, there's Fable, right? There's also a um, JavaScript com- compilation option. Do you have any insights into why you might choose one or the other, or if Reason is tempting to you? I know, I know you're already in love with F-sharp. Yeah, F-sharp is, so actually, uh, the whole F-sharp thing, whether I'm in love with it or not, I feel like Reason takes functional paradigms a lot more seriously than F-sharp does. Um, in particular, F-sharp has a lot of escape valves, right? And that's a lot of that's a side effect of having to interop with C-sharp and the .NET platform. Um, I, I, I'm, I know people are going to be mad. I don't, I don't think Fable's really a serious thing. Um, Reason, in terms of uh, the, bu- um, the buckle script and the JavaScript interop, is, seems a lot more mature and, frankly, a lot more performant right now. There is some dependency on JavaScript engines like everything else in the JavaScript world, but... Yes, of course. Depends on where you're running and how fast it is and how good the uh, JIT is, probably. <laughs> right. I-, I could almost see a-, a progression, right? Like, in fact, I'm working on something called uh, that I'm calling the functional gateway drug, where F-sharp is basically your, uh, you know, your core's light. And then, I don't know, something else is, you know, just moving up and up the chain until you end up at, like, Haskell, basically where reason feels a few it, I'm trying to, it's almost stricter right i think that's maybe the right word but i don't mean it in a negative way where f sharp is basically okay you don't have to do this if you don't want to reason is no you, you definitely do having said that it does interrupt with javascript right so you could in theory break all of that it took me a week to figure this out but you can actually import native ocaml dependencies into reason Oh, very nice. So you can leverage the existing OCaml ecosystem. Yeah, they call it um, ESY, but I think it's actually pronounced easy, E-S-Y, which is their basically their like package manager for OCaml. Excellent. Yeah. Sounds like you've had a, um, quite a little wild ride in the OCaml and Reason ecosystem. Oh, I feel like we went on a journey with Do Mike. you think you would actually um, use it? Are you interested? It's not like you found some of it tedious. I'm curious, you know, p- people obviously love the, the OCaml compiler, um, and having nice, you know, inferred types and a smart compiler that can help you do all this stuff without ideally getting in your way. Would you actually, do you think you'd see yourself actually using this language? Probably not. Um, not because I think it's bad, but because I think it would be hard to sell to a client this somewhat esoteric language that isn't JavaScript, which is a thing they know. But I could see, I could see a world where reason goes much more mainstream. And and to be fair, I don't know usage numbers on it, right? So maybe it's just like, I haven't seen it. Would you consider it if you weren't, um, you know, I, I could see how you may, maybe you wouldn't want a, like a, a client or something where they would want, 
you know, maybe they would want to switch consultants later down the line or something. Yeah, they had concerns of interoperability. I'm just wondering if you might use it, you know, if you're building something for yourself or a, a service you were running where you maintained complete control that was just your project. Oh, yeah. I, c- I could definitely see a case where, again, because it does interop with JavaScript, right? So I could see some mission-critical business logic that just has to be right and can't have errors. Um, much like I would, like I currently use Rust in Rails applications, right? Where this is important, mm. has to be, and it has to be right, and I'm willing to sacrifice some dev time for it. Um, yeah, I could definitely see that. Hmm. Excellent. Well, look at you being a sport, playing that was, around. That was fun. Mm-hmm. So now, is it your turn next? Yeah, next next time we'll get my report on Kotlin. Oh. I give him easy languages on purpose. No, I'm kidding. That's a lot of setup, though. That's a little, there's, speaking of setup, that could be a lot of setup to get going, unless you have any, anything installed already. You have to install... A gigantic Java-based IDE. Yeah, that has been that has been interesting. Yeah, it's oh, you already got it installed. Mm, oh yeah, oh, I've been playing okay, with it. Yeah. Ah, you're not you're not like rushing the homework at the last minute, huh? You're going. <laughs> I'm trying to, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm still working. I'm trying to get a, a, like a little test Android built app built too. Oh, nice. You're, so you're going the mobile route? Super cool. Well, I'd, I've been playing with just a little bit. You know, like I played with the command line, and they got a nice little um, web client. You can try it right in the browser because. Guess what? Kotlin also goes to JavaScript because everything does these days. Yeah, no um, kidding. But I wanted to specifically try out playing with an app because it's been A, something I haven't done in a while, and B, I mean, Google's pushing using Kotlin for Android pretty hard. Because they hate Oracle. All right, Wes. So in two weeks from now, what journey down the, the functional primrose path am I taking? Do do you want to keep going on the functional? Because you know, you were right. You're giving me you're giving me some um, a little more mainstream languages. I'm up for anything. I was kind of thinking maybe maybe you should use Go. Go? Okay. I've, I've actually not really done Go. All right. Go sounds fun. Go. That's what I thought. And especially since you, you know, we started you out uh, on your journey over in Elixir and with Erlang. That's true. Uh, Go is another language that, you know, it's big on its concurrency primitives. So and I think I'm this really could be a fun. really curious too. Yeah. And, you know, you've been playing with Rust. And while not, not the same, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Go has a garbage collector. It's a little higher level. It still excels at a lot of those lower level system sort of stuff, especially around networking tasks. So I could see it being pretty useful to you, Mike. Oh, the Rust versus Go thing, huh? Oh, I love it. I know. Yeah, here it comes. Here it's it comes. It's going to be a good episode. So, Mike and I were chatting offline about something that I think is kind of a significant change in the in the run of the show. Years ago, you can find episodes of Mike and I talking about how just simply distributing your software on Linux is this huge blocker for a lot of developers like they 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 think oh maybe like maybe I could port my application to the, to the Linux and then I could ship it over there and they start looking at the options and it's a nightmare this is this was especially true when we started the show because Mike was looking around and we were having a lot of conversations like do I target for unity specifically do oh, I yeah. target for gnome does it need to be cute uh unity yeah i know i know unity was a thing back then remember it's been a while but in this time a lot of things have shifted you now have app image flat pack and my favorite, Snaps. I kind of have a mix right now of containers and Snaps. So like a desktop application, I'm using Snaps. Sure. And server-side applications, I'm using containers. And then on, when I'm running Fedora, I use quite a bit of Flatpaks. But, you know, they, I, I find them to be great. I find them to be the solution that we were looking for all of those years ago. And and now, like, if we could go back in time, you know, and you could tell, hey, just wait a little bit, and then you can package it up as a snap. <laughs> yeah, like, it's would, coming. You're right, it's coming, it's coming. And you have different options with flat packs. You could host your own repository. You can have your own private thing that, you know, the whole world doesn't even need to know about. Uh, and that works for some. 
And then with like Snaps, you have the more traditional app store style model that developers are familiar with right now. Where right. There's a company you can you can go to for support. There's a central store that all of the users know about. So discovery is much easier and messaging is much easier and verification can happen on the platform side. And there's all these advantages to a central store along with their own disadvantages. And then you got the app image model, which is probably the most uh, analogous to app. Um, on Macs. Especially uh, like the original stuff. Yeah, where you download a DMG mm-hmm. and there's a, yeah, it's, it's very close to other app bundles. You know, an app image is a, it's a, like an app bundle that's self-contained and um, it's kind of nice for certain applications. Like I, I Etcher uses that, which is a, a GUI application to write to USB. Oh yeah, great one too. And it's, but that's a perfect application for app image. So yeah. they each has their strengths and, and use cases. I'm honestly, it, it's funny too, app images, um, you know, we don't talk about it that much, but it is, anytime I download one, I'm actually kind of Pleased, especially for trying something out, because even even with snaps, it's easier to move. Whatever, there's still that installation step. It feels a little more like I'm, you know, I'm doing something. And with an app image, you can just like run it. If you never want to run it again, it's one file to delete right off your file system. App and you're image done. feels like a low commitment, right? Whereas it like really a snap does. and a flat pack is you are now committed to that application. And you aren't really. I get that, right? I mean, you can remove it just yes. as easily. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's a little more complicated, and it just is. It seems a little closer to. I don't know, some bullshit Unix philosophy or just the, the parts I understand how it works a little bit cleaner than I Flatpak and Snaps presented a little bit more to learn with the with the daemon running and just it's a more complicated system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then last but not least, uh, I was really pleased to see just recently that uh, Snaps have taken a kind of a step towards even easier to install. Have you seen now that they have distro-specific install pages? Yeah. This is really neat and it makes it easier for the end user. Nothing really has to change for the developer who's packaging, but for the end user now, say you're on Linux Mint and you haven't yet like jumped into Snaps or you're on Fedora and you haven't gotten a Snap set up yet, you can now get a specific screen that tells you, this is what you do on your distro, here's the commands you run, if you want to copy pasta, you can, and uh, this will get Snaps operating and get your first application up and going. If you're like on a distro like, say, Fedora or Mint or something like that, and this is, it's just reducing that barrier, the user goes through this experience, this screen one time to get this stuff set up, and then they can just Snap install to their heart's content after that. It seems like a, a good move on the side of Canonical and Snapcraft just to show, I mean, obviously, Snap, they've done a lot of work getting SnapD running and Snaps running on all you know, diff- many different distributions. Um, this just seems to reinforce that. This isn't just a Canonical thing or an Ubuntu thing, right? Like, we have almost first-class support for all these other things right on our main homepage. And that is a message I think is important, not just to end users, but ultimately, the bigger message is being sent to developers. Like, we're going to make it easier for consumers or consumers of your software to get it on their distro. This seems like an important moment to me, Mike. And I'm curious with your experience and reflection on all the things we've talked about over the years, what your thoughts are right now. So, yeah, when I'm on Pop, I'm basically, if it's not in the repo, I'm using Snaps. Um, I have a few things, like the Bot Framework emulator that is distributed as an app image. But... For instance, all like I use uh, the JetBrains IDs like RubyMine, IntelliJ, and those are all snaps for me. Nice. I love it. Every once in a while, you know, you have to deal with like the snap tac tac classic thing, but I think this is great. The only weird thing I would say is I don't often use the GUI stores. Right. I'm usually going to Snapcraft and just finding out like what is the actual package name. I mean, that's okay though. I mean, you have both options, so whatever the user prefers. Right. And we, I mean, we're probably not necessarily the the people. 
it's not always my instinct to even go try to use a GUI page because I'm installing packages. I do yeah. it on the command line. Yeah. So using like the perspective though of past Mike, when when like you remember you were considering like how do I ship even for the Linux desktop? Sad developer Mike. Is this is this it? Do you think is this the solution past Mike was looking for? Oh, are you trying to get me into a packaging <laughs> flame war? <laughs> oh, we're already there. <laughs> I think yeah, I think that already happened. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I have to say that I don't use anything but snaps if I can avoid it. So I would, yeah, if I were to distribute a desktop Linux application, it would be via uh, the Snap format. And I would definitely put it in the GUI stores, right? That's, I know that alternatives exist, right? Flat packs, things like that. But I just have no need for it. And honestly, I like the idea of Snaps. I, I like that they're simple. And I, I was curious, in your estimation, is the Snap store being controlled by Canonical a positive or a negative? No, I wish Canonical controlled more stuff. I'm the wrong guy to ask. Well, no, I don't think so. Because uh, because you're looking at it from a developer who wants to publish their software. And then you, I, I'm assuming, don't, I don't want to speak for you, but I assume it's because then there's a company you can interface with. There's There are there are avenues to support. That is a thing. Like To be honest, and this is such a, like, a trivial thing, my biggest issue with desktop Linux as I use it today is that extensions kill GNOME constantly, which means I can't have nice things like changing browser backgrounds. Uh, I'm sorry, changing desktop backgrounds. Mm-hmm, which I love doing too. So I almost wish someone, I, I mean, I know the GNOME Foundation is huge, but I don't know, just a pra- as a pragmatic user who kind of doesn't have a dog in the GPL FOSS fight, I would rather stuff work and there be a vendor who you can like call or even just email, right? It does feel different even on, on like a more surface level when you go to, you know, like, any of the documentation or the Snapcraft website. It just, it feels very polished and you can tell there are people always thinking about it. And that's, you know, with open source, I mean, that may be true, but you, you know, when it's a volunteer basis, when it's community working together, sometimes there's not that same sort of top-down control that can provide a very Mm -hmm. polished, Mm -hmm. friendly appearance. I mean, I'm very impressed with the Flathub um, website and what that community has done. I I mean, I'm using the hell out of Flatpaks on Fedora and... I may even, once everything's all set up, I may even give the edge to the user experience to the flat packs. Really? Yeah. Um, How come? Well, once you're in, if you're willing to use the uh, GUI, yeah, once you're in GNOME software, it's, uh, well, if, same with Snaps. They're really, it's all kind of abstracted. You don't really notice. But the one thing I feel about the difference with flat packs is I have had more consistent theme experience and faster launch times. I couldn't, That's I could nice. not tell you legitimately on my computer that I use every single day. I couldn't tell you which applications are flat packs and which ones are from the repo, but I can tell you which ones are snaps. I but see. I still use them, but I can tell you which ones are the snaps. Right. So it's not it's not like it's a, a deal breaker, but no. it, it is something you notice. So but I think Mike represents um bigger picture here. I think Mike represents what will be, if it's not already become, the vast, vast majority of Linux users. There is there is really no like noob user that's going to understand that Windows is a piece of software that can be loaded and unloaded from a computer, <laughs> right? They don't even really have the concept of an operating system. No. I'm not making fun. Like it's just they don't care. And you're not taught yeah. that if you haven't researched it. Yeah, they think it's part of the hardware. Yeah, right. They might be doctors that are geniuses, but they just don't care that the operating system is a changeable piece of software. And then on top of that, even if they did know you could change it, they'd have to know what Linux is. And they'd have to know what a Linux distribution is. 
and they'd have to be willing to format their computer and reload it and re-import their data. This type of new user I don't believe really exists. I think the newest user you kind of get is when someone who already runs Linux switches someone else to Linux. But people who are voluntarily switching to Linux are Mike. People like Mike and system administrators, people in the IT field, that that sector of the industry. Already interested and somewhat knowledgeable about computers. Know how to read Reddit, know how to use Google. Yeah, have some debugging skills. And be maybe even privileged enough to have multiple computers so you can right. have a burner computer that you can load a new operating system on. This is the type of user that's switching to Linux. And I think that is a lot of developers. There's a lot of developers out there that are going to become the main user of Linux desktop. There's also, I think, maybe a third category. Like we, we have over here, people when I hire them, if they're not doing specifically Mac OS stuff, I do try to give them something like an S76 or some other Linux computer because it's just a lot cheaper and I can up- upgrade them year over year instead of you know buying them another $2,000 laptop. Um and for like support type workers, like, you know, customer service, things like that, having an intuitive way to install little applications or dare I say applets, small apps, right? You know, just like getting an account rep to use Aptitude or Aptget, whatever the current name is, is completely not a non-starter, at least in my mind. But having them, having them open the elementary store or the pop shop uh, or the Ubuntu store is super easy. And even like, writing a batch script for them that does a, a couple snap installs, super easy, right? I, I can't disagree with that at all. And I think what the weird thing that's going to happen is, is that type of user, that user base, uh, likes there to be someone in charge. You know, I, I would argue that uh, Mike appreciates that there are employees at Canonical where their employment status and performance status is based on how certain things perform, like snaps. There's nobody really doing that in the different communities for other package managers. If you think about it, that means there's people where their job is on the line to make this thing a success. There's a certain level of investment they can take. And that is a level of insurance that people in the sort of dev, sysadmin, you know, regular user category like. It's it, What's ironic is people other lean far to the free software side. That's the antithesis of the things they like. They want anyone to be able to control it. Right, they don't want centralized control. Which does have a certain benefit, right? If Canonical decides that they no longer want to pursue investing in Snap program. Well, and, and this is why there's a place for flat packs, right. app images, and Snaps. Because there is a market for each of them to address. And I think Snaps particularly address the mic-type market. And I think that's really exciting because that is the type of market that is creating software, that's going to be shipping software on multiple platforms. And uh, that means more software for all of us. They, they have a product to ship. They just need something easy to do. They want support. And you, it is interesting when we talk about like the business relationship. Yeah, right. If Mike is, is working hard and putting money on the line, investing and using the Snap technology, it's good to know that the other party is similarly invested. So let me ask you a question, because you guys are more false faithful than I am in that I'm not. Um, Going to get a lot of great Reddit comments this week. Isn't it a good thing, right? Like, isn't this just a sign that desktop, and I specifically mean desktop Linux, we're like, now that I could call Dell literally when we get off the line here and order a, a Sputnik XPS, or I could call, you know, Emmet System 76 and get, who knows, whatever they make, I'm probably going to buy it anyway, because that's how I roll. <laughs> we love you, Mike. Pre-installed, and within an hour of me just, like, loading a few applications, I can have a completely functional development or support workstation for an employee at an engineering company, right? With a software engineering company, where 
I would, and I'm going to go on a limb here. I would say like six years ago, my only option was to drive to the Apple store, buy them a Mac and pay, you know, several hundred dollars more at least and probably get a lower spec machine. I mean, there were Linux machines, but they just, it wasn't what they are today. No, not at all. I mean, it was, it was all compromise. Right. And not, not that prepackaged experience, right? Where there's a vendor you can call and say, Hey, you know, I blew something up, right? Hey, now system 76 has been around for like 11 years. I don't, but, but you know, it's funny because there was that period of time looking back at it now where it was like, we kind of had an XP moment where a lot of corporate desktops were shipping with like one, like maybe it was a unity or something like Mm, that. Yeah. And now we've kind of, we've kind of entered a new period where everybody's using gnome shell. It's not true. Some people use SUS. That's true. No, I'm sorry, not everybody, but like all the enterprise applications and desktops that ship, which is good. I think it's going to be a good thing. Why has no one fixed the, if an extension blows up in gnome shell, the whole thing goes down? It's probably a deep architectural change, Oh, right? yeah, for sure. So that's like a flaw deep on, in the low level. Part and parcel of the single-threaded yeah, business. So do you want to explain that at all? I mean, we've talked about it on Linux Unplugged. It's essentially, it's all a single thread. It's all one process. The, the, the mutter, the desktop, the, the, the extensions, the, the JavaScript engine that renders the GNOME shell interface. Um, it's all one process. And so if any part of it crashes, the desktop restarts. And what's even more brilliant and scary is in the Wayland future, it'll also be the display server. So your entire display goes down, well. which is why Canonical has opted to continue to ship X in their LTS release because it crashes better. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. just the, the way it, it separated. Cra- it crashes better. That's the way to put it. <laughs> the Linux desktop. It crashes better. <laughs> I think we have a show title on that one. It crashes better. Yeah. So um, that's why, not to not to belabor this, but I think workflow and tools are pretty important. That's why I spent um, about a year on Plasma. Hey, I'm still there. Yeah, and it's really good. Our studio machine over there is still on it. Uh, but I've recently switched to XFCE just simply because I like GTK applications I just want as least, I just want as the little desktop I need around it. I need a file manager, I need some launchers, I need like a taskbar, I need a clock. Um, and that's all I want, and that's what XFCE super minimal. is. Super, super minimal. Um, GTK. And that is rock solid. Rock solid. Like it uses, it sips the RAM and it just runs and runs and runs. And they've done this crazy thing where different things are different processes. So it's just, it's wild. Oh, how traditional. So, um, can we continue the derail? Just briefly talk about eGPUs. Oh yes, I mean, I see you bouncing in your chair. Join me. Oh, I have, I have. So I, uh, I have joined the eGPU cult. I got, uh, I started, I dipped my toes in the water when I got the Lenovo eGPU dock. Now, this is something that I thought is kind of a slam dunk because I wanted an NVIDIA card because it's just what I have the most experience with. And I wanted it to be compatible with my ThinkPad. So right. if a Lenovo makes a GPU dock... Kind of guaranteed compatible, right? should work, right? So I ordered that sucker, and sure enough, it does work. And it was pretty remarkable. I could even get it to accelerate the internal display of the laptop. Now, is this using that, that funky extra port thing, or is it just standard Thunderbolt? Straight up Thunderbolt 3. So nice. it's got this USB-C style connector. And it also offers as a dock, so it's powering the laptop as well. So it's right. the only cable on my laptop. Which that, is really that's cool. That's just fantastic. Yeah, it's really, it's so good. And then um, it has Ethernet, and it has uh, three USB ports, it has a sound card, and it has a couple of display ports and HDMI. And then it's got a NVIDIA, like, I think it's really not that great. It's like a, maybe a 1060 mobile. 
in there. Right. So not super fancy, but a big step up from integrated graphics. Yeah, integrated graphics built in. And so that's where I dipped my toes, and it felt liberating all of a sudden to be able to have like this laptop that has nine hours of battery life and all open source graphics. And I plug in this thing, and I get remarkable performance on this tiny little machine. But Linux isn't super great at having a GPU just disappear. Um, first of all, you have to power cycle. But second of all, even after you power cycle, sometimes when it powers back up, the the something in the stack goes crazy looking for the missing components. It's like, wh- what? Why do I have all these NVIDIA things installed if uh, I don't have any? And I know I had this module here. Like, what's going on? I've built this model. What's happening? And it just sits there and freaks out. And eventually, after about uh, a couple hours, one of the cores of the machine will and the, and the fan will be kicking up will be completely pegged oh, as geez. it's searching for the missing NVIDIA card. So I thought there's got to be a better way like to do this. wounded animal. Once I cracked this problem... The floodgates of eGPU heaven opened up, and it is changing my life. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. It is changing the way I test software. It's changing the way I, t- I test operating systems. It's changing everything about my workflow. I I am so happy. So I got to share this with you. This is sounding more and more like a legit cult. This is really great. So what I realized is the way you do virtualization PCI pass-through is you essentially, you find these PCI devices and you dedicate them to the VM and you blacklist them from the host operating system. Right, so the only one, they don't fight over it. Right. And then you go and you configure your VM and you say, go grab these PCI devices. They're all yours. Have at it. Once you've done that, it's, 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 Kind of depending on the device, there's a couple other things you have to mess around with. But once you've done that, you essentially have these devices dedicated to a virtual machine. And I thought, well, you know what would be pretty great? Why don't I dedicate the entire dock? So my dock with its USB ports, its sound card, its Ethernet, its GPU. It's almost like a separate motherboard you're jacking in there. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Let me tell you, Wes. Game changer. Because now I'm using a... Native. I mean, I'm using a real physical uh, mechanical keyboard. I'm using a full size gaming mouse. I've got a Ooh. I've got a, a 2K screen hooked up to this thing, and it's hooked up to the gigabit Ethernet. Um, it's got a, you know I've got big desktop speakers plugged into it. It's a fu- it's a full computer. And what you can do, because they're VMs, is you can clone them. So I've got I, I built one, and then I've cloned it multiple times. So I've got a Win 10 version. And I've got an Ubuntu version. I've got a, a testing one that I can blow away for testing. And then, then oh yeah, for doing distro reviews or just testing some software. West Payne, I have used virtual machines since the '90s. I have used I have used a PowerPC Macintosh running <laughs> virtual PC, emulating an Intel running Windows 98. I'm telling you, I have had virtual machines where there was an Intel add-on card that you plug into the machine oh. and it uses that to virtualize. I have built up huge VMware infrastructures that were mirrored across multiple data centers. I have experience with virtualization. I have never experienced performance like this in a VM. If you sat down and I just had my laptop tucked off to the side and you sat down and used that computer, you would use it all day long and have no idea it's a VM. You would never, it would ne- never, you would never, that's you would never a, know. That's beautiful. Yes. I'm going to try to get the product for you for the show notes because this is the eGPU to get. If you are going to build your own eGPU, there's a bunch of pre-built ones out there, but they're really expensive. Like a Razer Core is a good one, but it's very, very expensive. This is kind of expensive um, because, you know, you have to buy it in components. But I got the Mantis Venus eGPU. Check this thing out. It has... 
first of all, an open PCI slot so I can put a much better video card in there. Oh, yes. Long story short, as soon as I started gaming, the dock started overheating. And shutting down. No. So, like, I got so all, not really built for that. I made like this amazing breakthrough and started building up all these systems and started installing games because I thought, hey, let's make a gaming VM. Let's load it full of games. And then and then it starts crashing. But I wanted to go to AMD graphics anyways. Oh, yeah. Going on that side of the team. Yeah. Yeah. And um, because then I'm also going to build a Hackintosh VM. No. I was... Okay. Honestly, yeah. that was lurking in the back of yeah. my mind. Oh, yeah. Because... I'm going to have, have Windows 10. I'm going uh, to have a Linux VM. And I'm going to have a Mac OS VM. And the host OS is Fedora 30 on my ThinkPad. That is <laughs> so beautiful. Great. It is. I'm, I'll do a whole segment on it. I, I am so happy with everything you're saying. So I, I'm going to cry. I'm like... It's so good. <laughs> this is like Christmas. Check out this eGPU I got. First of all, it's got a 550-watt power supply in it, so it will deliver a full, like, 87 watts to the laptop. Again, single cable here. It's got gigabit Ethernet in the back of the thing. It's got three or two USB ports on the back, two USB ports on the front. So it is essentially, again, I'm going to be able to dedicate all of these to the VM. It's a full-fledged box. But here's the best part. (laughs) I can't believe they did this, and I I don't know any other eGPU enclosure that does this. Inside, they have a SSD slot, so you can mount an SSD inside the eGPU. Fantastic. Then you can put the VMs on that disk, and then I move that box around. I just have Vert Manager all set up on each host. I plug this thing in, I immediately get the graphics, and I've got all of the VM disks. You basically right just need to, to plug in some compute. Yeah. Wow. This is, this is an interesting approach. I mean, it's kind of like having six machines in one. You, and you wouldn't know you're not. You would not know you're on a VM. You wouldn't know. Because it, it is dedicated. It has full GPU performance. You're using a, a full... You use whatever keyboard you want, whatever mouse you want, whatever screen you want. This is the this is the Thunderbolt dream come to life. It's so good. It's so good. It's it's great. And I'm, so I'm going to set it up here at the studio. I'm going to set it up on my laptop. I can move it between. Now, I imagine it might might kind of mess with those uh, those stale, funky OSs like Windows. But you could then... I mean, oh, you yeah. could use the Linux VMs when, you, when you're not even around the dock, too. And here is also the best part. Now I don't have any funky proprietary drivers on the host OS. So it's all Intel stack. mm, That's nice. No weird graphics driver issues. Everything sleeps fine. I have great battery life. All the proprietary garbage is in the VMs. That's a great way to do it. Wow. It's the best Linux desktop setup I have ever had because you have the bulletproof open source stack, but you still get all the proprietary goodies, man. Yeah, you can can game in there, do whatever you need. I know, it's so good. And like, I I really don't like Windows, you know? Like, that's the other thing I realized is I was setting up Windows, setting it up, and I'm like, I I don't like using this. And it took me like two days, three days, because there's so many updates and stuff. And I was learning how to reuse Windows and set up the VM. In one evening, I got Ubuntu 19.04 installed with Steam and all the games. So much Just easier. Boom. Done. Windows is at least, I mean, it's better in a VM because you can, you know, snapshot and yeah, it. I want to play around with uh, WSL2 and I want to play around with a new terminal and stuff. I don't want to be ignorant about it. So now I've got a nice safe space. In fact, this is the best way to use Windows, honestly, because again, it's, I'd say it's 95% physical performance. It's so great. It's a great way to use Windows and you got snapshots. It doesn't have to touch your real hardware. <laughs> I am so in. So I've watched Mike for a little bit because Mike got a nice box. Oh, oh, and here's the other thing about that Mantis. The Mantis is using the same controller and USB controller as the Razer. So the oh. Razer products are pretty good. And this is using the same hardware inside that the Razer boxes are with a little more space, a little more power supply. And of course, that gigabit Ethernet, the USB hub and that hard drive slot. 
It's the perfect VM box. It it's I'll grant you, it's a lot of hardware to carry around to have a good VM experience. It's a little ridiculous. Yeah. Because there are ways to do it with like virtual NVIDIA GPU sharing and, and whatnot, but uh, all on one box. But to me, with my history of VMs and the things that I have experienced in the past to get decent virtualization. This doesn't feel like a compromise. This feels like a gift. So I'm happy to carry it around. I'm, I'm going to get a, like a bag. De- I might even travel with it. I'm, I just, I'm so dang happy. You know, it makes me think we could, we could use this for some, uh, some studio things too. You know, I oh, think yeah. you just plug it in. It's got, maybe it's got a VM f- f- for run all yeah. the things here. You could, couldn't you? Yeah. Like a, like, oh yeah, you could put all the stuff that's on, on our Reaper machine here. It could be in a VM. Boy, I'm already, <laughs> I think I, I was kind of debating building like a big beefy Linux desktop and put uh-huh. my nice graphics card in right. it, but I, I think I might just have to go this way. It's so nice. It's it's amazing with that what you'll get out of that ThinkPad. It's it's totally different because you have the same exact machine. Right. It's a totally different experience. It's mind blowing. Even if you just use it to accelerate the internal screen, which then you got to mess with the drivers and stuff. But so, Mike, does how does that sound to you? I, I mean, how's how's things in your setup? This is my jam now. <laughs> this is your fault. This is all on you. This is my fault. Although I gotta say, Chris, you took it several steps further than I did. Um, yeah, I. Uh, Ooh, it's, I, I can't imagine, and in a week I'll probably buy a Mac Pro, but I can't imagine buying another desktop now because you can always slot out a new card in your eGPU. And if you have a system like the Mantis here where it's actually your USB dock, one cable in, that's and fantastic. And what, like, I mean, this thing, it's like $300 right now? Is that the, is that yeah. you? Yeah, I mean, you do have to get your own video card too. Sure, of course. Which, uh, you know, that's good and bad. Mm-hmm. I, I think long term it's good. Yeah, a little more expensive up front, but you have choice, freedom, you can change it out when you need to. Yeah. Yeah, and there is some pretty decent video cards that are not a lot of money that are still way better than what the Intel graphics is doing. So you can, I mean, you don't have to get an $800 video card either. $100 video card. Yeah, right, yeah, totally. Start with something that's easy, and then you can upgrade from Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Unless you need to push 4K, then I understand, which I do not. (laughs) Well, I'm buying one of those fancy new uh, Apple stands, so. Not the monitor, just the stand. Just the stand, yeah. (laughs) That has several K of pixels itself, don't you know? Oh, I didn't know. It's good to know. I imagine. All stands must be a thousand or more to be acceptable. So now, how is running the Mac OS uh, VM on Linux? I haven't done that yet, but I have seen it is it is um, it is happening more and more. It's becoming a thing. You better get in now before they stop running on x86. Yeah, although... Although in Catalina they're introducing DriverKit, and DriverKit oh, yeah. is drivers in user space, which might actually be an enabler for the Hackintosh community. I don't know, but if there is a developer spec they can follow, and there's a way to run user space drivers, you're right. I mean, that might be certainly more flexible than all the yeah uh, hacky K extension hacking yeah, that's well, going on now. Yeah, well, locking that stuff down. Too. Exactly, they're really locking that down now. In Catalina, the system partitions read only. Yeah, they do APFS magic, baby. Woo! Slicing it up. Making it secure. They're doing that, interestingly, in a, in a time where there's a few Linux distributions that are also doing that same approach. Mm-hmm. Seems like maybe it's a sound strategy. Maybe something we should play with sometime. Oh, oh, oh foreshadowing. Yeah. We could, maybe we could make a little project on make your own read-only system or something. Mm-hmm. Well, Mr. Dominic, thanks for letting me uh, crash the party today. No, oh, I loved it. It was great. Um, and I'm, uh, thank you for joining the cult, the eGPU cult. I know I'm going to succumb uh, sooner or later. Now, wasn't it, it was just a few weeks ago that I can't remember, but I remember you were running a contest for Earth Day recently. Yeah, we were running an Earth Day contest for uh, students to basically pitch and do a little bit of kind of like pre-development documentation and maybe a little dev on a false solution to climate change. 
we got a lot of submissions and we finally have a winner. Kyler uh, Chin out of California is getting a System 76 Galago Pro. Congratulations. That's awesome. What was the what was the winning entry? Um, basically AI uh, TensorFlow powered AI resource management. That's amazing. Uh, wow. Actually, I could see that. Yeah, it, it's actually very practical. Yeah, even just some intelligent resource management can make a huge difference. I hadn't really thought about that. There is a place for FOSS and uh, and uh, technology and software to make a big difference there. I will say it looked like a pretty sweet machine, too. You had the specs posted up oh, on yeah, your Twitter feed, that. and like that's no slouch. Holy smokes. Holy smokes. All right, so of course you got it installed with Pop! OS. That's how Na- it rolls. Naturally. Naturally. 3.9 gigahertz. Wow. The 3.9 gigahertz with uh, eight threads, 16 gigs of RAM, 240 gigabyte disk. Nice. Nice. Oh, look at you. Even even getting the LCD uh, recycling in there. Look at you. And, uh, we went full hippie. And yeah. you went 1904 with Pop! OS, and of course, it's the 14-inch Matt. 1080p display. Because Matt, Matt's the only way to go. That's yep. one functional laptop right there. Yeah. Yeah, that's a nice upgrade on the RAM there. Very nice. Very nice. Congratulations. Kyler, huh? Kyler. Kyler Chen, yeah. Congratulations, Mike. I think that was a great thing. That was really, that's good on you. Look at that. Yeah. Mad Botter is doing their part. We're doing our part. You now, can find links to really, I think, all of that, right? Over at uh, coder.show slash 362. And check out the Mad Botter Inc. on Twitter as well. You can check uh, the, uh, Mike tweeted the uh, specs over there, right? Is that where he tweeted? Mm, that's right. Yep. Also, we should mention, if you're looking for work, Linux Academy is hiring. They are hiring developers as well as other positions. Some of them, most of them, are, rem- are remote work from home, too. So, And it's using technologies you've probably heard of, things like Node.js and Ruby on Rails. Yep, yep, yep. Check it out, linuxacademy.com. If you scroll around the site or in your linuxacademy.com slash careers, it links you to a lever page where they are all listed. Go over there, and in there, when you apply little pro tip, let them know you heard about it here. Ooh. That probably improves your chances, I would imagine. Because they're going to be more motivated to hire people that listen to podcasts like this. That's a real thing. I mean, if you've been listening to all of Mike's wisdom for all these years, you know what you're talking about at this point. It shows genuine, like, um, passion. For Objective C, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Never gonna, never gonna go away. Never gonna live that down. Nope, <laughs> nope. Objective C forever. Just always gives me flashbacks of that post WWDC episode we did. Just every time you do it, it gives me flashbacks. I don't know what the individual episode numbers are, but I have a feeling that one did pretty well. Yeah, I would imagine by <laughs> now people have figured it out and listened. Whew, that was uh, that was a great example of Chris uh, trying to uh, go with the flow and just try to keep the show on the rails as much as possible. <laughs> yeah, not my finest hour. <laughs> Oh, not my finest hour either. Listen back, I seem so young, so inexperienced. Oh, child. That's what I say every time I hear it. You're, you're, we were wisened now, though. Seasoned is Seasoned, what I indeed, yes. Seasoned, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> Like a nice cast iron pan. Oh, thanks. Thanks, it was. I think that's a compliment. I'm, I'm not really sure. Yeah. You know, the show is live on a Monday, jblive.tv, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. There may be some pre-recording. I don't know. At some point, Wes and I have to travel to Texas. Get to. We get to travel yes, to Texas. Yes, we do. Adventure to Texas. Yeah, we're going to do a Texas adventure at the end of the month. But I don't know. Is that actually going to impact recording? I don't know if it actually will or not. But we'll, we'll chat offline. But the reason why I bring it up on air is because I want to let you know we do really love it when you join live. Oh, it's lots of fun. And you can get it in your time zone at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Now, if you, you know, maybe you can't make it or you want a backup method to make sure you always get your Coder Radio, well, Coder Radio, we have an RSS feed. We have a way to subscribe. We're on all the apps, Coder.show slash subscribe. And 
that's probably, you know, <laughs> probably we always lead with the live stream, but the reality is the vast, vast majority, like 99.9% are getting it on the RSS feed. And we appreciate that. So we have uh, Drew now, new uh, full-time Jupiter Broadcasting member, joined a couple of months ago. Uh, he he uh, brings it through the wash, cleans up, brings in uh, uh, Mike's local audio. Oh, so, so I think, nice. I hope people have noticed it's been sounding phenomenal lately. I think Coda Radio has been sounding really great. And a big part of that is uh, is thanks to Drew. He's a wizard. And, of course, thanks to Mike for <laughs> being willing to record the audio there locally because it, it's more hoops to jump through. Way more hoops. No worries. But uh, now we're pro-sounding. We're like, we're like getting up with NPR now. I mean, I don't want to brag, but I'm really proud of you guys. Planet Coder coming soon. <laughs> if you want more Mr. Michael Dominic, and I know you do because, well, uh, I do, you can find him on Twitter. Mike, you're at? At Dimanuco. Chris, you're there too. At Chris LAS. And I'm at Wes Payne. Thank you so much for joining us. Please come back next week. We'll see you then. <laughs>